The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. If you will, take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we will um, finish up this little six-week mini-series uh, in the midst of this longer series going through 1 Corinthians. We've, this, I was counting this up. This is the sixth sermon in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, so this is, I'm, I'm just going to title this as a mini-series here on the resurrection. Uh, so uh, that's where we are, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at 50 through 58 today. The title for the sermon this morning is, He Who Dies in Christ Wins. He Who Dies in Christ Wins. Now, I always go back before the service and I share my my sermon title and my text with the guys in the booth so they are prepared and they can put that on the screen. And as I'm telling my sermon title to, to David Moss, I said, he who dies in Christ, and he said, wins. And I said, you're right, wins. He said, well, I didn't know that, but I don't have to listen to the sermon now. <laughs> so if uh, Angry Birds or Flappy Birds whatever that game is, comes up on the screen. It's because David already knows it all. He's just checked out. Uh, He who dies in Christ wins. Um, As we've gone through looking at the body, the resurrection, not only of Christ but of all who believe, we we come to this issue of the body, and and I found a great illustration this week. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the great thinkers in in human history in, in, um, in Christendom, uh, has, has spoke of a view of the body in at least three basic ways. Uh, he talks about it the first way that we could, that people could view the body is the same way that ascetic pagans used to view the body uh, as, as um, they called it the, the prison or the tomb of the soul. Um, other Christians like Bishop Fisher, which I think would be a great new nickname for Steve Fisher, Bishop Fisher, I think we should call him that. Um, but Bishop Fisher, fall, he fell in this, this same camp of seeing the body as this prison or tomb. And, and he referred to the body as a sack of dung, food for worms, filthy, shameful, a source of nothing but temptation to bad men and humiliation to good ones. So that's one extreme. That's one camp we could fall in when we look at the body. It's bad. It's evil. It's a prison. It's, it's food for worms. Just can't wait to get rid of this thing called the body. There's another way we could, we could look at the body, uh, C.S. Lewis says, and we could be like those who indulge the body and seek to find ultimate gratification in the body. They, they look for ultimate joy in it. And he describes this camp uh, in this way. He says, like those neo-pagans, the, the nudists, the, the sufferers from dark gods, they're those who just indulge the body at, at every turn. And so you see here we have one extreme saying the body is just evil, just a prison, just can't wait to get rid of it. And then there are those that see the body as the ultimate source of good and let's pleasure it all that we can. But there's a third way that we could view the body. And I believe this is more of a biblical way for us to view the body. And um, C.S. Lewis describes it this way, and he, he's talking about St. Francis, who uses the word for donkey that we no longer use. 
And because I'm in the company of children and little ears and all this, I'm going to clean that language up and use donkey, okay? So he, he says, we have the view which St. Francis expressed by calling his body Brother Donkey. Donkey is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, deserving now the stick and now a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful. And isn't that, let me unpack that for you just a little bit before we look at the text, isn't that more of a biblical way? That sometimes these bodies are like donkeys for us. They're useful. They can take food from our hand to our mouth and feed us. We have legs that will support us and carry us to to good places. These bodies sometimes are good and useful. Other times these bodies fail, right? And they're more like the donkey when he's being lazy and obstinate and deserving of the stick. And some of you today are, are here and you, you have this pain or crick in your back somewhere and you woke up this morning with a sleep injury. You know, you, you just somehow injured yourself in the middle of sleep. And that's, that's how sort of pathetic our bodies can be sometimes that we can injure ourselves even sleeping. And this is, this is the view here. So, so should we take the extreme to say the body is evil, can't wait to get rid of it? Should we take the view of the body is awesome, let's pleasure it all that we can? Or should we realistically in this already but not yet existence as believers where we've already been saved but we have not yet been transported to the world beyond into the very physical presence of God, should we look now to say these bodies are sometimes useful, sometimes burdensome to us, but one day they're going to be redeemed and transformed to be in the presence of God. And that's where I want us to to go, and I want you to see that, and I want you to, as we look at this text, as we wrap up this chapter, keep in mind that the body will also be redeemed. Let's look at this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We come to this passage, and I just simply want to walk through this, and I've made for myself some some headers. They're not necessarily points per se, but it helps me to, to, to know where we are in the sermon. And this first header or point, if you're taking notes, is none of us are ready. None of us are ready. 
It's what he's talking about there in 50 when he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on or, or inherit the imperishable. Paul is simply saying that these bodies in their present state that will die, that are dying, we looked at that last week, that death is inevitable. We've never found any way to stop it. It comes to us all, even with all the, the, the juice diets and the cleansing and all the different treatments. Nobody's ever figured this out, that we can, we can stop this from happening. These, these bodies that we currently live in that will die and are dying cannot enter into the imperishable, the eternal, never-dying kingdom, which is heaven. I mean, what kind of heaven would that be? What kind of heaven would it be if God took us in these bodies into that place? What kind of heaven would it be if we knew that at some point we're also going to die there? That we would never be able to enjoy it completely forever because we would have over the horizon our own death, which would take us out of that world. If, if heaven's going to be a physical existence, then something has to happen what, we've got to be transformed in some way. And he says, you're not ready for it. Like a, like a moth that enters into a bug zapper on a July night. We would be zapped if in these bodies we tried to enter into the infinitely holy presence of God Physically. Ever heard anybody say something like, something along these lines to say, you know, I, I want to go to heaven, just not right now. Anybody ever heard anybody say something like that? Or said something like that? I've said that. Uh, I, I've heard my own kids say that. Dad, I, I want to go to heaven, but Dad, there's so many things I still want to do, you know? I mean, I want to I learn how to drive. Uh, my son turns 15. Uh, next week, and, and uh, we're kind of going into those years where he's going to be starting to drive, and y'all pray for me, and because uh, I'll be playing mediator between him and my wife, you know, so um, pray for us. Uh, uh, say things like, I want to go to heaven, but, but I also want to know what it's like to get married. I want to know what it's like to have kids. I want to know what it's like to this, that. We, we, de- we can't have this perspective of, at least perfectly, of we want to go to heaven because there's still things that we want to do, people that we want to love, places we want to see. Why is that? The reason for that is because our desires have not been completely transformed yet. We still have this earthly pull on us, but one day that's going to go away. We're not ready yet, but we will be one day. And I'm, I want to tell you that we're going to look at this passage, and on that day when Christ returns and the dead are raised and those who are alive are also transformed, there will not be one single Christian in that group that will look back and say, I want to go to heaven, but just not yet. Because in that day, every bit of this will pale in comparison with what we are being ushered into. But we're not ready yet. None of us are ready. But we will be. This is the point also of verses 51 through 53. This is my second point. But we will be. None of us are ready, but we will be. And it's going to be both the living and the dead. He says there in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, there's going to be some who who die before Christ returns. And they on that day will be raised and changed 
But there's also going to be a group that's going to be alive when he comes back. And they're also going to be changed and fit for this heavenly existence. I mean, he's just spent considerable time on the dead being raised, but what about those who are still alive? I mean, he just went thoroughly through this. Those who are sown perishable will be raised imperishable. And he went through those different, different differences there for those who die. But what about those who are still alive? Well, they miss out on heaven unless they first die. Well, they have to, in some way, in an, in an instant, die and be raised. If not, then how will they be changed while they're living? I mean, how will this happen? And this is what makes it mysterious. Even though we don't have all the, the details, it's not just those whose bodies are decomposing in graves that will be raised and transported to this heavenly existence. It's also those who will be alive. It's, it's, it's those who've been dead, and it's those who are alive. And there will be those that are alive that are in the prime of their young lives that will be taken in that moment, who are believers in Christ, and they will be taken and transformed. I want to draw your attention because I don't want you to be confused. He says in this, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And just to clear this up, he doesn't mean here all as in this universal scope of every single person who has ever existed or will ever exist will be changed. And I, I base that on the fact of how he started this, this section. He says in verse 50, I tell you, brothers. He's talking to believers. It's only the, the believers, those who are truly saved, Christians who will be raised and be changed. It's only those still living who are Christians who will be transformed and taken to this heavenly existence. And this seems like weird talk here, but I want to tell you today that if you're here and you're not a believer and you're banking on this to include you, regardless of you ever having trusted Christ for yourself, I want to tell you without any minced words today, your, your hope is placed in a false place. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that we get to go to heaven just because God's nice. Nowhere does the Bible say that we will live eternally with Him because our grandmother was such a faithful believer. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that because we got wet in a pool or sprinkled somewhere, or whatever the case may be, will we be ushered in? Nowhere does it say that. Instead, what the Bible teaches is that those who personally trust in Christ, turning from their sin and trusting Him, those, those will live forever in His presence in heaven. If you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted in Christ, then I want to implore you to turn from your sin and trust Him and Him alone. Not only will it be both the living and the dead, but it will also be a process. And this is where we get into, well, how does this happen for the living? Now, there will be no marks put on the kitchen door frame to see how much you've grown since that time last Christmas. You know, there's not going to be this process. There's not going to be, husbands, Awaiting in the car for others to finish getting ready, right? 
So maybe you're, maybe wives, you're in the car and you're waiting on your husband to get ready. Whatever the case may be, no judgment here, but it's not going to be like that. There's not going to be this process. It's not going to be like trying to lose weight and get in shape where we change our diet, we, we stick to a strict regimen of exercise for weeks and months, and we get on the scale every day to see if we've changed at all. It's not going to be that way. Instead, the Bible here says, uses very specific language, and one of those words is in a moment. And that word moment is the, is the word from which we get our word Adam. A-T-O-M. It's the smallest measurable quantity. It cannot be cut or divided. He also uses the word twinkling. The twinkling of an eye. That, that word is, is literally means to throw with great force or to hurl. And when it talks about the eye, it's saying the eye, in just as, as much time as it takes the eye to, to twitch here and there, to follow the movement of something. Ever been standing maybe at the kitchen sink and you're doing something there and, and out of the corner of your eye in the front yard, a, a bird kind of just flutters in and you just quickly look. And your eye gets there before your head gets there. What he's saying is that that quick, in this smallest measurable quantity that cannot be cut or divided, in the hurling with great force of your eye to look at something new, in that amount of time, we will all be changed. It's not going to be this process. It's going to be fast. In that little amount of time, we will be recreated for our heavenly existence. Also in this, we will all be changed together. Not only will it be the living and the dead, and it won't be a process, but I want you to see in the rest of verse 52 that we're all going to be raised and changed together. He says there in verse 52, the, the last part of it, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now Paul is not saying here that he believes that he's not going to die before Christ returns. He's simply using the language that would make sense going forward. That we is inclusive of all who believe that there will be some in that group that will be alive. And he, he combines the two here though we will all die at different times, we will all be changed together. We'll all be raised and changed together. Isn't that, your, your grandmother that passed away that when you think about sometimes you miss and you long to see her again or your mom or your dad or maybe a child or someone, they've died before you and, and gone on, but they're absent from the body if they're believers, and they're with him in the presence of the Lord. But there's coming a day when, though they died at a different time from you, we will all be changed in an instant together. No one's going to experience this before anyone else. This is a beautiful picture. It reminds me of an illustration I heard years ago, because here he talks about this, this trumpet. A trumpet will, will, will signal that this is to come. And, and it reminds me of this illustration that in the Civil War, one night there was uh, soldiers in the Civil War that, that had to sleep outside without tents. And sometime in the middle of the night, I guess all night long, it snowed. And the chaplain was the first one up the next morning, and he was up at dawn, and he looked out over that field, and he saw the, the, the sleeping soldiers all over this field, and they were now covered with snow. And he, he commented that their bodies looked like the, the mounds of, of new graves. And about that time, the soldier whose task it was to blow the, the, the bugle, 
came out and he played Reveille, and this chaplain stood by and watched as immediately a man stood up from each of those what looked like the mounds of new graves. And he was reminded instantly of this passage, that there's going to come a day when God in his own way will sound this trumpet and those who have died in him will all together be raised. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That, that we're going to be together experiencing this together. Well, here's uh, my next point. On that day, here's the point. Our undefeated enemy will finally fall. Our undefeated enemy will finally fall. This is what he means in 54 through 56, and this is going to take some time to unpack, but I want us to get this because this is not just details of what will happen. These are some real theological constructs that we've got to have that will deepen your love for him. Listen to what he says in 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, when I crafted this point, I used the word undefeated enemy because there is not a person who has ever gone up against death and won. And, and don't we know the feel of its defeat every time we stand at the, the funeral of a loved one. We stand by the bedside of, of a loved one who we've, we've labored over and we've watched them as they suffer from a disease and the, the, the outcome we knew was bleak and we knew this day was coming, but there's a moment where you stand by that bed when they have drawn their last breath and they have been pronounced dead and we feel the final word, the final say-so of death. What do you say to that point? What do you say to death in that moment? Standing there, death has had the last word. I would say to you that even those that were standing by the cross that day when Jesus was hung on the cross and they listened as he uttered those seven last sayings and then finally it is finished and he bowed his head and he died. There were those that were standing by that day that felt the sort of victory that death had claimed. That for a moment, Mary and John, as they watched, saw this and said, death's won again. That the Pharisees and the scribes and those who hated Jesus and wanted to get him there finally said, we won, we won, look, we won, he's dead. As they put his body in the tomb, they felt the victory that death had brought. But then, when Jesus rose three days later for the first time ever, death had not won. What looked like a victory for death for the first time ever was death's defeat. Someone had beaten it. Someone had defeated death for the first time ever. Death's reign as heavyweight champion was over. We said, well, wait a minute, if death has been defeated by Jesus and he's been raised, then why do we still die? Because death has been defeated, but it's not been put away yet. And this is what he means here when he says, it will be swallowed. Look at verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
It's no longer death victory. Now it's the victory of Christ. And also it's the victory of all those who are in Christ. And one day, on this day, when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised and we are all changed, in that day, death will finally be swallowed up. It will not be a process even here. It will not be like when you build a sandcastle on the beach. Anybody had this experience? You, you're there with your kids on the beach and you're building this sandcastle and you work hard on it. I could never build castles. We built big big donuts and everything else in the sand. Probably Krispy Kreme was on our mind. We did all this kind of stuff. And then we'd go up for the day and we'd go back up to our room and we'd look out off the balcony and we'd watch as the tide came in and we would look at where we were and we'd see our castle donut whole structure thing and we would see the water as it came in and it would every time the water would come up a little more, more of that would just be washed away. And it would finally be swallowed up to where it was no more. And this is not how it's going to be, but I want you to know that in in a similar way, death will be swallowed up by the victory of Christ. Death still gets a kind of victory over us and over our loved ones now, but death's victories will come to an end when Christ returns and believers are raised from the dead. Death's victory will be swallowed up. Not only will death's victory be swallowed up, but death's sting will be removed. And this is where I want you to kind of camp out and see this. Death's sting will be removed. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Well, what does he mean here? The sting of death will be removed. Well, I would argue that sin is the deadly poison that has led to death. Can't we say that? Doesn't Romans 6.23 tell us that? That the wages of sin is death? That there would be no death if it weren't for sin? That we would not die? That Adam and Eve, if sin would have never come into the picture, would have never died? They would have lived with God forever. But sin ushered in death. The sting of sin, of death is sin. As long as people still die, we are reminded of our guilt before and against God. This is what it's all about. Every time someone dies, every time we stand at a funeral, every time we look into a loved one as their life is slipping from them, we're reminded that we owe a debt, that, that we've sinned and we're guilty before God. The death is, is the penalty, it's the punishment This is how John Piper says it. He said, the reason death is horrible is because of sin. Sin means this is damning. This is punishment. Hell is on the way. Just over the horizon, John Piper says, are the flames. Sin puts the horror in it. My guilt is what makes me so afraid to die. And can't we say that's the case that without Christ, without, without the hope and the assurance of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we are clean and righteous in Christ, without that, that we would be deathly afraid of death. Because we would know that in dying, we're going to face the God whom we have sinned against. Here he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law means this, that This doesn't mean that the law is evil, that it's somehow working in tandem with sin, that law and sin designed by God is evil. That's not what we're saying at all. 
It's sin as a human creation. But law is given to us by God so that it becomes a mirror for us so that we can see our sinfulness. So that we can know that it is against God. The law is good. It shows us our guilt. No one will ever be saved by the law. This is the, this is the point of the law. And those Jews throughout all those years going back to the temple over and over and over and over again, sacrificing animal after animal after animal, it was a reminder to them every time that we cannot keep the law. That we, we're sinners. The law shows us. He says the power of sin is the law because without the law we would not see that it's truly against God and we owe a debt to Him. No one will ever be saved by the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says the letter, in other words, the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. You say, well, then how is the law good? You said the law was good. How is it good? Well, it's not by itself. But add 57, and it becomes glorious. This is the last point that I'll make to you. Actually, I've got one more point after this, but this is the second to last. In verse 57, not only will our final enemy, our undefeated enemy, fall, but we will stand in victory because God has fought our fight. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, in our, in, without Christ, without this, I'm going off my notes here, but without, without the gospel... Without resurrection, without the cross, all we've got is sin and the law. And the law shows us our guilt and we can't do anything about it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Jesus did what we could not do. He satisfied the demands of the law perfectly. Because without sin, Jesus never looked into the law of God and saw a reflection of a sinner He never looked into that mirror and and saw that he had broken this. Instead, when Jesus looked into the Scriptures, he saw a reflection of the Word. He's the living Word. He has fulfilled and satisfied the demands of the law perfectly, yet he still took the sting of death. He still took the sting of death. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? It's death, isn't it? We've sinned. The wages of sin is death. We have sinned. The curse there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, Christ, He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. In other words, Jesus took the sting of death even though sin had no power over him. Then he turns in this passage and he gives us the victory. He gives it to us. That's what it says there. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's it's His victory. Jesus has gone up against death. He's the only one who's ever gone up against death and defeated death. 
but he turns and he gives us the victory. That if we, by faith, would trust in him, we might also defeat death. Praise God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with that being said, here's, here's the last point. Here's where I want you to walk away with something. There's some application that will come out of this, and I'm not going to give you specifics of application, but I'm going to give you some, uh, some encouragement in whatever it is that God's calling you to at this moment. Here's the last point. Therefore, let us lay down our lives in the labor of the Lord. Let us lay down our lives in the labor of the Lord. It's what he says in 58. He says, therefore, my, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's what I would say to you, church. Because of the resurrection, nothing that you do in the Lord is in vain. Nothing. Nothing you do for his glory is ever in vain. Here's what that means. Students of all ages, high school, middle school, elementary, primary, all the way down. Here's what that means. Your homework, the way you obey your parents, the way you interact with your friends, none of it is in vain if it's done for the glory of God. Live to the glory of God in whatever got you doing at this point whether it's making your bed in the morning or taking out the garbage or treating your sister with kindness or or obeying your mom and dad, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is, students, it's not in vain if you do it to the glory of God. Moms in the room, wiping runny noses and changing diapers and doing laundry and dishes and all those things and reading and all those things that go into you caring for your family. Maybe it's laundry for your husband or whatever it is. Maybe it's listening to different stories he has. Whatever it is, it's not in vain. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's not in vain. The resurrection makes this true Dad's in the room. You're going to work every day, that mundane place that you don't care for much anymore because it's just the same old thing. It's tiring and it takes you away from what you'd really like to be doing. It's not in vain if it's done for the Lord. Fathering your children, grandfathering your grandchildren, not in vain. Not in vain if it's done for the Lord. Loving your wife, And being committed to her is not in vain. Even though the world would say to you, isn't it time for a midlife crisis? Isn't it time to trade that life in for a younger, newer model? Isn't it time to chase after these other things? Even though the world would say that, for you to do these things to the glory of God is not in vain. Retired people in the room, Your lives now are not in vain. Sitting down with a cup of coffee every morning with friends is not in vain if it's done to the glory of God. Whatever it is God has you doing at this point, it's not in vain. Christian, missional living is not in vain. Knowing your neighbors 
knowing your coworkers, having conversations with them that lead to the gospel in Christ. It's not in vain. They may look at you and ridicule you. You may feel like it makes it awkward between you, but it's not in vain. Nothing that you do is in vain. You may, you may take on the missional life in your own neighborhood and never, been, never be called beyond this geographical location, but you may also be in here and God may call you to one of the most dangerous places of the world and you may lay down your life after serving there for only a number of weeks, be martyred for the case of Christ, not in vain. Whatever it is that God puts into your life and calls you to and has you doing at that moment, it can be redeemed for the glory of God. It's not in vain. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Those words are important. Steadfast means keep on going. Steadily moving forward. Once you've put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Keep going. This one's active and it's progressive. The second one, immovable. John Piper gives this illustration. It was too good for me not to use, but I'll give him credit for it. Like that rock that's on the beach when a tsunami has washed everything in that village away, but when it washes back out, that rock has not been moved. Be immovable as you serve and live to the glory of God. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Do the things that matter. Fill your days with activity that makes much of Jesus in your life and in the life of others. Read your Bibles. Hide his word away. Share it with others. Do what it says for the glory of God because the resurrection means that death can't take us away from the presence of God. This life is temporary, it is momentary, it is fleeting. Use it. Harness it for the glory of God because when this life is over, there is a life that is just beginning. And it will be a life where you are raised in a physical body that is changed and you will live around the throne of our God for all of eternity to sing His praises. So he who dies... With Christ wins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege to be called by you. What a privilege it is that you have saved me and that you have saved us in this room. That when we were dead in sins and trespasses, you loved us. You made us alive and you called us to yourself. You've put your spirit within us and now we live. God, help us not to live the way the world lives, but God, help us to live in light of that day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we will all be changed. But God, I pray that we with Paul would say, therefore, I am going to 
in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, because I know that nothing I take on here for the glory of God will ever be in vain. God, help us to believe that. God, I ask you to be merciful today. Save us, call us to yourself. Call people out of death, make them alive today, God. I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Ethan and, and the rest of the band are going to lead us. You're going to have an opportunity here to, to think about this, to contemplate this. Maybe it requires you sitting where you are and just having a conversation with God right there. Maybe it requires confessing of sin. Maybe it, maybe it would be better for you if you could make some type of demonstration of that, not, not, to, not to us so that we would see and watch, but, but that there might be this sort of, God, I'm serious about this, and you might come and gather here. There's nothing magical about these steps across the front. These aren't an altar. There's only been one altar that saved us, and that's the altar of the cross. But if you'd like, you can come and you can kneel across here and you can pray. If you're here today and, and you're lost and you don't know the hope of Jesus Christ and being forgiven by him, then I would invite you to turn from your sin, from trusting yourself as your own authority, and trust in Christ. Cast yourself on his mercy. And if I can help you with that, I'm going to be seated right down here. Come see me. If this is the church where God's leading you to join and be a part of, come see me. Whatever the case may be, whatever God's calling you to, be obedient today. Step out. Trust him. You will not be disappointed. It will not be in vain. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.